Welcome to The Long Box of Darkness, a podcast looking at horror in comic book form. I'm your host, Herman Lowe. Join me as we take a peek inside The Long Box of Darkness. Greetings, listeners. This is your host, Herman Lowe, back again for another episode of The Long Box of Darkness. Today we'll be looking at some British comics, specifically a comic book entitled Monster, written and conceived by Alan Moore and then John Wagner and Alan Grant with art by Heinzel and then Jesus Redondo. And then also a second comic book, which was released just before Halloween by Rebellion Publications, the same people who've been publishing 2000 AD for the last couple of years. It's called The Scream and Misty Special. And I'm very, very excited to talk about these two titles. As you'll soon find out, they've got some amazing stories, some amazing art. And it makes me very excited for the future of British horror comics. But uh, normally I discuss comics from the States. I even discuss the odd French or Spanish horror comic. Um, They seem to like their horror. Um, Even some South American horror comics make it my way every now and then. Although I find that most of Europe seems to prefer science fiction and fantasy comics. Uh, Britain, they have a few, but the only publication I think that is of any real note would be the Scream magazine that was published in the early 1980s, I think in 1984. And it uh, didn't even last a full year before it was cancelled. So they had some great stories in Scream. Um, The magazine was fantastic. Uh, by all accounts, I never read Scream as a kid because um, we got a lot of 2000 AD here in South Africa, but for some reason we never got the Scream magazine. Um, I'm not sure if it was because it was banned. It could be South Africa did ban a lot of um, material back then, especially movies and, and some books. But the comic book could have been part of that. I'm not sure about that actually, but Um, Suffice to say that even though I frequently went to um, uh, book outlets and um, corner stores where they sold the 2080 magazines, I never actually saw a Scream magazine. So I'm just 
uh, guessing that it might never have reached South Africa at all as it was published um, almost 30 years ago. But I've always heard about Scream. I've um, heard a lot about the different stories featured within uh, the magazine's pages and the creators involved, and I was very excited. I think the first time I heard about Scream magazine was in the late 80s. Um, a British friend of mine um, told me about it, and um, uh, I was excited about it because I was already a horror junkie back then, and I could never get my hands on, on a Scream magazine. Then, finally, when I went to London uh, in the late 1990s, um, I finally managed to pick up uh, some old Screenback issues. They were pricey and, and they weren't in very good condition. And I loved it and it had some great titles. But we'll talk about the history of the magazine a bit more later during our History of Horror Comics segment. Let's get into the first comic that we're going to be discussing, a comic book entitled Monster. Now, this, like I mentioned, comic was conceived by Alan Moore. He only wrote the first episode, and um, since it's a serialized comic strip, um, it basically con consists of eight pages per week, and then... Um, the comic book starts and stops, and it's a little bit jarring reading it all in a collection, but I was surprised that at the end, I, looking back after I read the recent collection that they put out, I really enjoyed it. And the collection that I'm referring to was released last year, probably around August. Um, at least that's when I picked it up, um, maybe, a little, maybe in September. Um, I can't remember exactly when I picked it up. But I ordered it through Amazon UK, um, and it arrived here in Taipei after a couple of weeks, and I, I read it. And the first time I read it, I wasn't very impressed, uh, specifically because Alan Moore was credited as the writer, with R. Clark uh, being the writer on subsequent issues after the very first installment. But So for me, that seemed like a um, playing off of Alan Moore's fame, trying to get the comic book to sell because um, of the... Uh, notoriety associated with his name, but also the the quality of his craftsmanship and writing. So um, I was upset about that, but the comic book, looking back on it, was really great. Even though Moore only wrote the first probably eight pages, um, the, the rest of the 150 or so pages left was written by John Wagner and Alan Grant under the pseudonym R. Clark. So they've never done me wrong. I've been enjoying their Judge Dredd stories and Strontium Dog Tales for many, many years, probably more than three decades by now. So they deliver in Monster as well. It's a different kind of comic, um, and we'll get into it right away. So the story revolves around a young boy called Kenny Corman, who lives with his abusive father. His mother has passed away, and um, during the first few pages of the first story, Kenny is made aware of the secret tenant living upstairs in the attic, um, the attic that Kenny himself has never been allowed to enter by his father or mother. And it turns out that his mother had been keeping her monstrously deformed brother, um, a person called Uncle Terry, Terry Corman. Um, she had been keeping him uh, in the attic because he was too um, 
horrific and too monstrous looking to um, be let out into the real world. And she was also afraid of what, what people would do to him and the abuse he would suffer at the hands of society. So she decided to take care of him and this kept him and fed him and took care of him in this attic for years and years and years, probably going on 20 years. He must have stayed there. So the mom passed away, unfortunately, and then Kenny and his father were left with this monster upstairs. But Kenny still didn't know who was um, in the attic. His father was, started to lose it. He had debts, uh, so obviously had some financial troubles, and he was at the end of his rope. He didn't want to take care of this monster anymore after his wife passed away. Uh, technically his brother-in-law. So one day he was drinking. He went upstairs uh, with the intention to kill Um the monstrous Terry Corman. Uh, things didn't go as planned. It turned out that Uncle Terry has incredible inhuman strength. And he used this strength to basically kill uh, Kenny Corman's father, to rip out his chest almost. So uh, just to give you a brief description of what Uncle Terry looks like, imagine a gigantic version of the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Um, yeah, it's almost a cardboard cut out of the hunchback, except he has um, these two giant clawed hands with these long ape-like arms um, and truly, truly horrific looking character. But um, he has the mind of a five-year-old child, so he's completely innocent. He just acted in self-defense when uh, Kenny's father showed up to kill him. So... Um, after the father stumbles downstairs, mortally wounded by Uncle Terry, Kenny finds his father and then he head, he watches his father die and then he heads upstairs and he finds Uncle Terry, uh, the monster. And um, he discovers through a um, note that his mother left, uh, discovered the sordid history of his mother's family and how um, they hid Uncle Terry from birth from the world in order to protect him. So that was his mother's family secret. And she also asked that someone, anyone who reads this note, please take care of him, that he's an innocent. And um, as far as I know, this was Terry's first uh, murder or his first kill. So he, he doesn't actually view killing as wrong. He, um, you know, kind of at times during the comic book, he finds it um, necessary, fun, and um, completely moral because, like like I say, he's a child and he's never been taught otherwise. And he defended himself and because of his monstrous strength, killing comes so easily to him. But Kenny, he immediately befriends Uncle Terry and he decides to, um, you know, hide the truth. So he buries the body of his father, but not before a moneylender shows up. Someone who's looking for their money, the money that Kenny's father has squandered or lost in gambling debts, who knows. And the moneylender is a quite vicious uh, man. He barges in, assaults Kenny, and even goes so far as to try to rob Kenny's piggy bank. And then, of course, Uncle Terry um, is very upset about this. He sees Kenny as his new friend. And throughout the book, um, Alan Moore, and then later on, Alan Grant and John Wagner write Terry's uh, dialogue in this distorted, uh, childish baby language. Um, 
And so he calls Kenny, friend, friend, not hurt, friend. And then he takes this moneylender and basically hurls him against the wall, uh, snapping the man's neck, crushing him, and um, he dies too. So he's already killed two people within the span of a few hours. And then uh, Kenny and Uncle Terry has to bury both of the bodies in what I think is the front yard of the property, which seems to be in the countryside, uh, the house where Kenny Corman grew up and where Uncle Terry was kept all these years. So from um, that point onwards, um, the story commences. That's just the setup, which happens within the first two installments. So let's say within the first 16, 16 pages. All right, so we've been introduced to Uncle Terry here, and little Kenny, he's a 12-year-old boy, he, um, he's, he's got a good heart. He want, really wants to take care of Uncle Terry, and he doesn't know what to do now, now he, that he's been orphaned. So at first, their plan is to stay at, at home. But then something terrible happens. There's a, a rainstorm and a flood, and the bodies kind of wash up in the loose dirt that's now been churned into mud by the rain, and, and the bodies grotesquely pop upright and stand uh, like zombies glaring at Uncle Terry and, and Kenny Corman the next morning, poking their heads out of the mud, these uh, <laughs> two bodies. And that, that part was pretty grotesque. I mean, you have to remember, Scream at this time was a children's comic, and it wasn't called a horror, horror title. None of the ed editors or writers or anybody promoting the comic could refer to it as a horror title. Um, it had to be just a scary comic that that's the the furthest they could go when describing it. So um, this was pretty grim stuff, if you think about it, for kids to read, these two bodies popping out. And Redondo, the artist, he's an amazingly talented draftsman. His illustrations are really lifelike, um, heavy on the shadows when they need to be to evoke the sense of horror, but also very detailed. And that comes across very strongly, when, especially with regards to Uncle Terry, because his um, grotesque features are rendered brilliantly by Redondo. So um, imagine this artist portraying these two already putrefying corpses bobbing out of the mud like, um, you know, toy ships almost. So because of that, Terry and um, Kenny... Corman, Uncle Terry and Kenny, they decide to leave because now they're on the run. There's no hiding what they've done, or at least what Uncle Terry's done, and that's it. And that's where the adventure kicks off. So they have quite a few um, adventures uh, together. Uh, the police pursue them, and um, we, we fall into this familiar rut um, where Alan Grant and John Wagner, I, th I think they might have... Um, well, this is just my opinion. They might have been uh, creatively uh, stumped about what to do with Uncle Terry now that they've got him out of the house and, and running around the countryside because it seems that every single episode um, for about uh, 30 or 40 pages after they left the house was about Uncle Terry getting into fights with men who are upset or disturbed by his appearance and then they inevitably attack him or they've read in the newspapers about him, and then he kills them. And Kenny admonishes him and says, Uncle Terry, I've told you hurting and killing is bad. Don't do it. 
and always Uncle Terry promises, um, yes, Kenny, uh, Kenny friend, uh, Terry do what Kenny say in this childlike droll. But then again, in the next episode, it happens um, where the where someone attacks him, and he loses his temper and kills them. Like I say, very easily with his monstrous strength, and his strength is such that he can easily um, turn over a car, which he did to two policemen who managed to track them down, and he uh, rolled the car down a hill. He can take on multiple burly men at the same time, even though they they're armed with clubs and. Um, pickaxes and whatever, what have you. Um, Terry wades through them like um, basically a chainsaw through confetti. <laughs> He's uh, immensely powerful. Um, and Kenny always has to then sort of find a way to escape and move on to the next town. Now, Kenny is driven by the dream uh, that he might be able to cure or at least help Uncle Terry because Uncle Terry does seem to have a psychological problem. He's almost childlike in his understanding of the world, but he has these uh, serial killing tendencies and Kenny's worried about that so he heard about this doctor up in Scotland who could possibly cure serial killers or people with you know uh, extreme antisocial behavior and that's where they're headed um, you know according to Kenny uh, a child's dream really a child's uh, hope for his uncle Terry because during this time Kenny has really um, grown to love his uncle Terry he sees him as a great big goof, and um, he, he really uh, has strong affection for him, so he feels sorry for him. It's it's pity, but it's also love, familial love too, because it's the only family that poor Kenny has left um, since he so recently lost both of his parents in succession. So they eventually head up to Scotland, and um, there's a few adventures where um, Terry and Kenny are separated from each other. Um, Kenny's hurt. He ends up in the hospital. Terry has to figure out a way to find him. And then uh, he happens upon a, a doctor making a house call to someone in the countryside. And he hears the person uh, that um, says farewell to the doctor, addressing the doctor by his title. And then he says, oh, you doctor, you help Terry. <laughs> And he accosts the doctor, and the doctor has obviously heard about the monster that has been rampaging across the English countryside, killing people. He's killed almost a dozen men by now, and he's even got a name that the papers uh, gave him. He's called the Brightchester Monster. So the doctor has heard about him, and uh, since he can't escape the monster's clutches, Terry threatens to do bad things, like he says, Terry, do something bad if doctor not listen to Terry. Then um, the doctor decides, okay, he, he might have to play the smart and take Terry back to his clinic, and then uh, possibly under the pretenses of curing Terry, he might be able to put him to sleep with some morphine or some other uh, type of drug. And this is the plan, and the plan goes well, except for the fact that even though the doctor has put enough uh, tranquilizer or morphine or whatever he was using in the syringe to knock out an elephant. Terry's incredible, uh, durable uh, strength and, and um, monstrous um, vitality, if you can put it that way, is even too much for the drug. And he, even though he's dizzy, uh, he proceeds to kill the doctor in a horrific fashion. 
um, since he saw the doctor as betraying him once the needle was stuck into his arm. But then he does pass out. And eventually there are also other adventures where Terry's still on his way to find Kenny. Um, he stumbles um, into a carnival. And there's this great scene where he falls into a hole of wax um, monster ex exhibits. And you see the Frankenstein monster, Dracula, the wolfman, the mummy there. Um, and because they don't want to talk to Terry, he destroys them. Uh, this part, I think, would have been almost better. I mean, uh, far be it for me to tell legends such as John Wagner and Ellen Grant what to write. But I, I think they missed an opportunity there. There could have been some real pathos in a moment there between Terry and the monsters where he could, you know, sort of feel a type of kinship with these silent monsters staring at him. Instead, he destroys them. He rips them apart, not because he's angry at them because um, they are a reflection of him, but because they don't want to talk to him. So for me, that was a wasted opportunity. But still, um, the comic gets better halfway through and things really start picking up especially when terry and kenny like i say get separated uh so eventually um the monster terry the monstrous terry is captured and kenny is brought in to calm him down but this is only after a couple of episodes uh, more um, where he's killed uh at least another half dozen people um simply because uh, these are, well, macho guys who populate the English countryside seems to ignore the stories they read in the newspaper and everybody wants to uh, take the monster in themselves or attack the monster and, and have a go at him to see if they could be the heroes and bring him to justice. And they, they never leave it to the police. They all attack him and then they end up being torn apart or um, crushed to bits so we have Terry um, in this carnival and eventually some carnies kidnap him and they try to make money off of him. Uh, but, you know, uh, by arranging an interview with some reporters, Terry ends up killing the reporters. And then the carny, uh, the carnies try to kill Terry in turn by having him dig his own grave. Um, even though they blast him with a shotgun, he still survives and, and ends up killing them too. So, um, well, this guy's got a talent. Uncle Terry's got a talent for killing. Eventually, they do, like I say, apprehend him. The police um, finally managed to do that. And Uncle Terry is brought to Kenny, uh, who calms him down. And Kenny explains what they're going to do to him. And um, there's a trial. And a psych psychiatrist determines the mental state of Uncle Terry and, and tells the judge that he's got the comprehension of a three-year-old. And because of that, they decide to put him in a high-security hospital, a mental hospital for treatment. Um, but Kenny's um, last living relative has been located, and she's his aunt living in Australia. So because of that, Kenny has to go to her. She's going to be his legal guardian now. So he's going to leave England altogether, abandoning Uncle Terry against his will, I, I have to mention. Kenny doesn't want to, but, you know, he's looking forward to his new life too. He wants to have a fresh start. And he's, at the end, he's um, assured that Uncle Terry will have a nice life, at least in the hospital. He'll be taken care of. So Kenny's um, 
taking a plane to Australia, and he's very sad about Uncle Terry. He promised to write him every day, even though I'm pretty sure Uncle Terry can read. But um, uh, things don't go as planned. Bad luck for the monster again. While he's being transferred to this hospital, the driver of the um, the truck uh, veers across the road after he swerved to avoid a dog in the middle of the road, and then they crash down a a hill of sorts and everyone dies except for Terry the monster. So Terry now finds himself in a dilemma. Should he wait for the police to arrive and they might think it's him that he killed the amb- the, the drivers? I mean, four drivers, are, four people basically are dead and he's the only survivor because of his um, superhumanly strong monstrous body. Um, and he, he decides not to hang around. He knows that the police will blame him. And he starts um, making plans to find a way to go to Australia. So he makes his way to some docks. I think it's in Blackpool. I'm not sure now, but I, I remember something. They went to Blackpool. And um, he climbs. And there's this very sad scene where he's out in the snow looking in through a window at a family celebrating Christmas. And Uncle Terry's just... Um, this poor pathetic figure in looking through the window, watching them sing Christmas carols, this family inside the house, enjoying the warmth of their company and being indoors. Um, pretty pretty good scene, I, I must say. I really felt something for Uncle Terry here. And then after that, um, he does make his way to a ship. He uh, becomes a stowaway on this um, cargo ship heading to Australia. And then, um, because he has a finite amount of food, he eventually, during the voyage, uh, a week later or so, he sneaks into the kitchen where he um, gobbles up most of the food. The cook finds him and the sailors apprehend him. Now, at this time, Terry doesn't fight back. He doesn't want to kill any more people. Kenny talks some sense into him. He wants to, like he says in his own words, be good. So um, they put him in the brig or, yeah, um, behind bars. And he's befriended by this um, uh, seaman who brings him, his sailor, <laughs> who brings him his um, meals. And um, here we see John Wagner and um, Alan Grant uh, take a stab at the Aussies and the way they talk. So we've got a lot of mates, and uh, they call England Pommyland. And uh, after that, you know, Terry makes a new friend, but um, uh, it's made known to Terry that he they're heading back to England, um, so he won't be able to go to Australia after all to see Kenny again. He's upset. He literally tears the bars to pieces and uh, escapes the brig, and he walks up onto the deck of the ship, and he sees Australia is just um, a mile or so away, and he decides to jump for it and jumps into the water. Unfortunately, these are shark-infested waters, as were made known by the crew who screamed that uh, to Uncle Terry as he's floundering in the water. And then um, his mate, the Aussie sailor who befriended him, he throws a um, life ring into the water, and Uncle Terry at least manages to stay afloat. But then a shark shows up, intent on gobbling up Uncle Terry, and then something really comical happens, and... That's where this comic sometimes veers a little bit off track. It's not a purely a horror title. There's some real, really funny scenes in it, much like John Wagner's Dread Strips. So um, 
this scene with the shark is definitely one of the best ones. Um, luckily, the shark uh, gets stuck in this life ring. And um, <laughs> because of that, Uncle Terry, Terry ends up riding the shark, whose mouth is now ensnared or, enclo- or closed by this life ring. And um, the shark man manages to wear himself out, and Uncle Terry then paddles to the shore. And he's tired, and he eventually um, uh, finds another friend here. It's an Aboriginal Australian called Digger, a very nice old bloke who unfortunately has been pinned by a tree branch, a giant tree branch, and uh, Uncle Terry frees him. And then Digger and Uncle Terry become fast friends, and Digger takes him to his home, a little shack in the Aussie wilderness near the beach. And they, uh, you know, have a barbie, (laughs) a barbecue in uh, Digger's words. So you've got uh, more Australianisms thrown in here. And then um, they end up dancing and singing around a fire. Um, A digger plays the accordion while Terry screams at the top of his voice the lyrics to Waltzing Matilda. (laughs) Another funny scene. All right, so um, after that, there's a brief um, story of some criminals uh, arriving at the shack. They're looking for a place to hide out. And... um, Terry takes them out, but instead of killing them, he apprehends them, and Digger takes them to the police. So the whole story of Monster kind of ends with Terry becoming a hero, even though everybody thought he drowned in the ocean. At least that's what the sailors reported. So Kenny also read this in the newspapers. He probably never found out that his uncle was still alive and was, in fact, in Australia, where Kenny now lived. But, um, yeah, he. it seems that... Um, the monstrous Terry Corman ended up living with Digger, the old Australian Aboriginal, and they were happy. They became best buds, and they lived way out in the wilderness, nobody to um, discriminate against Uncle Terry because of his appearance, only old Digger as his constant companion. So uh, kind of a happy ending. And then there's a couple of uh, prose pieces at the back of the collection um, chronicling the further adventures of Uncle Terry in Australia. (laughs) So that's it. That's the comic book Monster. And Monster was published and serialized in the Scream magazine in 1984 until the magazine was canceled. And then eventually Monster moved over to Eagle, the Eagle magazine. And um, there it was, um, it finished its run. So um, one of the most prominent strips, I think, in uh, the Scream uh, magazine back in the 80s. But like I say, I never read it back then. This is something completely new for me. I've I've read it only twice. I read it last year, and then I read it again in preparation for the show. Um, Because it's worth mentioning, at least in the annals of British horror comics. Okay, we're going to take a little bit of a break, and when we come back, we'll look at the Scream and Misty special, also released by Rebellion. Uh, just before Halloween this year. The first most important event was being born. What a what a extraordinary little radical experience that is. When I first started to publish books, and I knew that I'd signed the contract, and I knew that my books were going to be published, I would wake up every morning and think, 
my book's going to be published. I'm going to be in print. And it was like a total reassessment of who I was. I am telling my life every time I write a page. My fiction is my confession. Everything that was ever important in my life is written. I'm putting it down. That's what I do. And the more absurd and ridiculous and rococo and rock the imaginings, the closer it is to me. The great Clive Barker there, talking about what inspires him to write fiction. I wanted to mention a Clive, at least, because we're talking about British horror comics here, and recently he wrote um, a lengthy run on his character Pinhead in um, the Hellraiser series published by Boom Studios. So I've uh, pimped it before on the show. I'd advise you to pick it up. It will be available. Well, it's already available in comic book stores, but it will be available from Amazon and other online retailers in a week's time from now, probably around the 14th of November. So get on that, horror fans. All right, let's get back to our um, comic book under discussion here, the Scream and Misty special. All right, so uh, Scream we've talked about uh, before, but Misty was a comic book uh, for girls um, that was also put out around the same time, a little bit earlier than Scream was put out. In Britain, and it featured. It was inspired by Stephen King's novel Carrie, well, mostly, and it featured a girl with telekinetic powers. But it also featured a couple of other um, stories, such as The Return of the Sentinels, The Fate of the Fairy Hunter, um, and also, of course, the main title Misty. Uh, so, um, a pretty good title, I would say, but. Also, not really horror. Um, it had a bit of um, a few scary scenes, but like I say, I never even read Misty either. This is all hearsay from what I've heard on podcasts and the like. Um, of course, the British uh, comics of the day were not allowed to print too much gruesome horror, although you'd never know that when you looked at 2000 AD. Uh, they just went crazy over there and you had the most horrific things in comics, which I absolutely adored. Still, this was a comic book focusing on kids. So um, now that Rebellion, the publishing company in the UK, has acquired the rights uh, to the Misty and Scream comics from, from way back when, they've been, um, uh, well, they've planned to collect it. They've already collected the first volume of Misty, reprinting the classic stories. And um, now they've I decided to probably, well, according to this Halloween special that they put out, continue uh, the tales in a modern setting, which I'm very excited about. And this is sort of what this Scream and Misty special is all about. It features prequel stories to um, tales that will be written and drawn by modern comic book writers. Uh, so this is sort of like a primer for anyone interested in um, British horror titles in comics, but it's also um, the, the prequels that will introduce the characters and help readers to um, understand what they're going to get once 
Scream is published again uh, on the regular. So um, the stories featured within is The 13th Floor, The Dracula File, Death Man, The Gathering, Return of Black Max, Blood Moon, and The Return of the Sentinels, Fate of the Fairy Hunter. The last two are from the pages of Misty, the first four from the pages of Scream. And um, we uh, got a great cover. We've got um, the horror hosts, Misty herself, and Ghastly McNasty, the horror host of the Scream comic book, standing in a graveyard, and there's a corpse that has arisen from the grave uh, to read old issues of Misty and Scream. And uh, Misty's sort of hugging the tombstone behind the corpse, looking at the reader. Ghastly's got something oh he's got a selfie stick oh my goodness I've, this is the first time i've seen it he's got his cell phone on a selfie stick and he's taking a selfie of himself <laughs> ghastly he's this um reaper type character with these glowing blue eyes sit in the dark recesses of a um a hood and he's got long clawed hands basically he's a walking corpse covered by a cloak with a hood and Misty's this very pretty girl, um, dressed all in white with um, black hair, very pale skin, red nails, red lips, and these stunning blue eyes. And then you've got this corpse grinning as he's reading these um, back issues of Scream and Misty. It's a hilarious cover. I love it. All right, so we've got introductions by the horror hosts on the first page from Ghastly McNasty himself, and then from Misty. Now, uh, according to research I've done, um, the editor, Ian Rimmer, he got the name Ghastly McNasty back in the 80s from um, a band of, at that time called Filthy McNasty. And then he decided to call the horror host Ghastly McNasty. So old Ghastly is quite a character. He's got a few funny lines here in the introduction. Misty is very eloquent too, although she's um, seems like she's high on some kind of a drug or something because yeah she's she's definitely um on another plane of existence at least that's what her words betray um and then we get right into it now the first strip uh is the 13th floor which was the most popular strip in scream back in the day it features a sentient uh tower block uh, apartment building called max maxwell tower and it uh, yeah, it's run by a computer AI system. Um, now, there's 12 floors in the apartment building, but actually there's a hidden secret 13th floor, which is um, under Max's complete control. It causes hallucinations, and Max is, um, due to a fault in his AI, is totally psychopathic and um, insane, really, when it comes to protecting the tenants of the um, apartment building um, any outsiders who even so much as transgress within Max's walls is lured up by Max to the 13th floor where he proceeds to torture and kill them through illusions or hallucinations induced by his um, computer um, abilities, his abilities to manipulate the environment in this tower block. So Max is quite a character. And um, the first story is great. It just basically introduces Max again. But it's a completely new tale. And um, the tower block has since been abandoned, but a young boy escapes some hoodlums by running into the block. He lies to Max and says he's a tenant. And then uh, the, 
the uh, hoodlums who chase this boy are lured up to the 13th floor where they are tortured by Max in these horrific scenes illustrated by artist Fraser Irving. Uh, Fraser Irving, a great uh, comic book artist. I love his stuff. And it seems that, um, uh, yeah, the writers on the first story was Guy Adams and John Stokes. Well, John Stokes was the artist, and then Fraser Irving did some art for that hallucinatory scene where the um, criminals are getting tortured, um, these interlopers. So basically what happens is uh, Max is back, and he says that um, he t tells the, the young boy at the end, after these horrific scenes of torture that the boy has witnessed, he tells him, you must know of more people who are in need of punishing, who deserve punishing. And the little boy then looks shocked at the reader and then he lowers his head and raises it again and he's got this evil grin on his face and he says, yeah, he knows lots of people like that. So he's going to lure them into this tower block. And then on the next page we've got a quick ad which says that Rebellion is in fact going to publish the collected 13th floor, uh, possibly in two volumes. But the, the first volume is coming in 2018, and I'm really excited about that. I've always wanted to read the 13th floor. I've heard a lot about it since the late 80s, and I could never get my hands on any of it, um, except, like I say, in the, in the late 1990s where I read, you know, sporadic episodes of it, so I couldn't get the whole... Um, package. Uh, then the next story is The Dracula File, uh, probably the second or third most popular strip um, of Scream back in the day. It features Dracula himself alive and well in London in a modern setting, of course, and this story features a vampire hunter um, and great art, I should mention, um, and a vampire hunter of Indian origin, I think, um, and she is in an apartment block in uh, London, uh, ready to take out Dracula. And then we've got some gruesome scenes. Dracula transformed in, in, transforms into this giant bat creature and um, makes his escape, but not before um, facing off against this vampire hunter. He manages to kill some of Dracula's cronies. And it, it looks like a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to this as well. Um, I've picked up the collected trade paperback of the Dracula file, which collects the classic stories. Rebellion has published that too uh, this year. And I've since read uh, half of it, and it's great. Really good art. We're talking about the classic Dracula file here. Um, and the original Dracula file fe featured a Russian uh, spy hunting Dracula in London and then keeping a journal uh, about his... Um, uh, exploits and um, his attempts to put an end to the count. And then we've got a bit of a throwaway story called Death Man the Gathering. Now this uh, sort of collects a couple of the IPC characters that Rebellion had has acquired, uh, which they're publishing under their Treasury of British Comics line. And um, the characters are, among others, um, Steel Commando, Doctor Sin, Thunderbolt the Avenger, Death Wish. Um, some of them are from comic books or, or comic magazines for kids in Britain called Buster and um, uh, Speed and Thunder. Um, there's also one from 
Tharg's Terror Tales from 2000 AD, uh, one from Jet, um, the magazine called Jet. We've got more characters, The Leopard of Lime Street. We've got Pete's Pocket Army, Von Hoffman uh, from Von Hoffman's Invasion, uh, The Dwarf, The Sergeant's Four. And uh, all of these, creature, uh, these um, creations are thrown together in this mishmash um, of, of storylines where they, they basically have to um, uh, deal with Von Hoffman, who's managed to capture an alien, which is in fact one of the character's uh, alien companions who disguises himself as a goat. And Von Hoffman is this criminal mastermind. He lures another criminal mastermind called the Dwarf um, in order to get this iron armor. And he um, has this plan, obviously, that we are not made aware of, but Deathman and the Leopard of Lime Street and Pete's Pocket Army and the rest have to team up to stop him. So a little bit like a superhero fair. Um, it's Like I said, it's a throwaway story. I, I didn't really particularly enjoy the art. I didn't especially enjoy the story either. Nothing to write home about. And then um, we've got, oh, by the way, that story was written, before I forget, by um, Henry Flint. Uh, the art was by Henry Flint, and then it was written by the Feek. Oof, uh, Henry Flint's art, yeah, looked a little bit rough there for me. Normally I do quite enjoy Henry Flint's art, so I didn't mean to disparage the great man, but um, that story just didn't do it for me. And then the next one is The Return of Black Max, Blood Moon. Now, this is a compelling tale as well. I'm really, really excited for it when it when it's going to come out on the regular or when the old comics are collected. It, it features a German fighter pilot from World War I and um, his two giant bats. He's sort of like a bat creature. Um, and... The story features this young girl who's thrown into this uh, world uh, where she meets up with um, this, uh, like I say, this ace pilot called Maximilian von Klor. <laughs> Although the girl calls him Baron von Nutbag. <laughs> and then um, she has something that he needs, an iron cross. He needs to return to the real world and he needs this magical iron cross that this girl has. Um, to return and we see him uh, pursuing this girl through this apocalyptic landscape um, which is all in red because of the blood moon uh, rising in the sky and um, the uh, plane that he's flying shoots bone shards and teeth at her instead of bullets <laughs> which is awesome so that looks to be a great character and a great story and then we've got a cute little page featuring a spot the difference between um, the characters featured within the comic book um, uh, most of the characters featured in Max uh, Max Towers strip two pictures spotting the difference I haven't seen one of those in ages and then we've got Scream and Misty 2018 horror scope <laughs> where Ghastly and Misty uh, predict um, events based on the, the horoscope um, star signs and then you've got the final story which or this the second to last story called the return of the sentinels which is from the misty uh, magazine originally and it's it features some great art great storytelling um basically it's about these two tower blocks almost similar to max tower but one of the blocks are um 
is inhabited by regular folk, and the other one is a portal to an alternative earth where uh, the Nazis have won and where Britain has been taken over by fascism. So also looks to be a great story. I enjoyed reading it. This girl ventures into this world and barely escapes with her life and then makes it back. And then the final story is another throwaway bit. Um, but before we go into that, let me mention who wrote The Night of the Sentinels. It's a script by Hannah Berry and art by Ben Wilshire. And like I say, the, the writing and the art is quite passable. All right, so uh, Fate of the Fairy Hunter is done by Alec Worley on writing duties and art by Danny. And the art's quite good. I do um, appreciate it. It's um, black and white, black and white strip, and it featured this uh, fairy hunter. Um, and uh, she is the apprentice of um, an older fairy hunter who masquerades as a writer of fairy fiction. So um, uh, she has to prove her chops to her mentor, and uh, she takes out this fairy who's trying to get at the the writer. Um, so a very short, very funny little tale uh, where fairies, um, the fae as they call them, are portrayed as evil and a detriment to humanity. So uh, those are the stories featured in the Scream and Misty special. Thoroughly enjoyable. You have to pick it up. Monster, I give the writing three out of five. And the art by Redondo, definitely a five out of five. So overall, let's say four out of five for the monster comic. And we're going today with um, a rating system entitled the Selfie Stick of Doom rating system. I just made that up uh, in reference to Castley's, Castley McNasty, the horror host from Scream's selfie stick that he's sporting on the cover of the Scream and Misty special. So four point four out of five. Uh, selfie sticks of doom for monster and then for the scream and misty special i'd be hard pressed to get it to give it any less than five out of five selfie sticks of doom it really excited me for future collections of scream and misty and i'm gonna be buying a lot from rebellion in the months to come let's just put it that way all right so that's it for our first segment discussing monster and scream and misty special uh, next up is our Aaron segment. Well, we're back with our favorite little sinister podcaster, Aaron Lynn. Aaron, hi, how are you this week? Tired. Really? What time is it here at the moment? Almost 12 a.m. 12? Oh, okay. Are you sure about that? Because I'm, I'm still raring to go. Must be all the coffee I've had today. Yeah, only you. <laughs> all right, so what have you been up to horror-wise recently? Well, I watched Stephen King's 1922 last week, 
And this week I finished Bag of Bones, both on Netflix. So no horror comics this week? Nah, no time. Okay, cool. Tell me which uh, TV show between the two of them did you like more? Maybe Bag of Bones. The story was a lot better. Well, I'm discussing monsters this week on the podcast. So, any monsters in either of these two shows? No, just ghosts. Okay, so they're ghost um, movies or, or ghost uh, TV shows about ghosts. So, but do you have any favorite monsters? I don't really have a favorite monster. Maybe Ape Sapien from Hellboy. Ape Sapien. From Hellboy, why do you why do you like him? He's cute. <laughs> so you're into fish men, fish people. Maybe I should grow it. Well, somehow mutate a set of gills. <laughs> Listen, so um, uh, who's your well? Since you don't really have a favorite monster, well, apparently it's Ape Sapien, but I don't believe you on that score. Then, do you have a favorite ghost? Mm, maybe Casper. Casper! Casper the Friendly Ghost. Erin, we're doing a horror comic no, show I'm here. I'm kidding, kidding, okay. Okay, so do you have a favorite ghost? Mm, my favorite ghost is Slimer. Slimer? From Ghostbusters? Okay, that's it. Cut, cut. We'll, we'll commence next week. We'll, we'll continue with this discussion again next week. Everybody, that's our Erin segment for this week. She's a little bit unwilling, like she said, it's late, but we'll forgive her this one time, won't we, Erin? Mm, yeah, thanks. See you again next week, Erin. <laughs> Take it easy. All right, we'll be back. And uh, next up is our history of British horror comics. So stay tuned. Right after the short break, we'll continue with the show. This week in our History of Horror segment, we'll be looking at horror in British comics. So we've already discussed Scream and Misty. Um, and um, I think it's worth mentioning that there was, um, similar to the campaign in the States, in the 50s, there was a campaign in Britain as well to sort of curb the... Um, prevalence of comic books, especially horror titles in uh, during that time, as uh, they were uh, justifiably worried about the children's reactions to these visceral images presented in lurid art uh, with a lot of sexual content um, as often as not. So um, apparently, according to various sources and uh, books I've read over the years, 
um, some like Grant Morrison's uh, Super Gods, where he reminisces about his time as a youngster uh, reading comics. Uh, some of the kids back then, um, in 1950s or early 1960s Britain, Alan Moore also writes about this in his um, uh, uh, memoirs, so to speak, um, especially in books like, um, let's say, The Extraordinary Works of Alan Moore, which I've got here right in front of me. He mentions something about um, finding these comics um, at the naval bases in Britain where American sailors sometimes docked and um, where they read these comics. And there was an influx of this type of comic because a lot of American sailors back then read it. The EC Comics of the day was very popular. A lot of British children was exposed to it. And uh, parents worried. So there was a campaign similar to the uh, Inquisition-style um witch hunts in the 1950s in America. So um, I, I would recommend that you pick up a book called A Haunt of Fears, published by Martin Bake Barker, Martin Barker, no relation to Clive Barker, apparently. And it chronicles the strange history of the British horror comics campaign in the 50s. So after that, most magazine publications focusing on children as their main readership, sort of um, played it a little bit um, uh, conservatively, if you can uh, say it like that when it comes to um, portraying horror, especially um, the creatures of horror, meaning ghosts, zombies, vampires, and the like. And they were often placed in comedic roles, um, you've got comics like The Dandy, Buster, Beano. Sometimes they feature, well, not Beano so much, but definitely Buster and Dandy. They would feature some horror titles, uh, but wasn't really horror. It was just um, dealing with horrific elements, but in a comedic vein. Um, I'm thinking of creatures here like, like Face Ache, uh, The Boy of a Thousand Faces, or um, a, a Haunted School, um, many titles like that and it wasn't really frightening to kids it was just dealing with some uh, elements of horror and making more personable and more likable for kids but when Scream came along it was really an attempt to um, sort of focus on uh, pure horror except that they were um, obviously restricted by um, British British censors and also by their own management and editors. Apparently, uh, the, the process that the Screen Magazine had to go through simply to um, the editorial process was um, very strict and untenable, if you think about it. Um, according to some of the editors at the time, um, the, the script and art had to go to, through many different layers and of management before it was um, finally signed off on. And because of that, uh, there were delays in the Scream magazine. And that was one of the reasons that led to its cancellation. Uh, but also because of an industrial dispute that um, happened at the time. Um, and uh, Scream was cancelled, unfortunately, in 1984. But for me, British horror comics was alive and well. Not in magazines like Misty um, for girls, 
But in the pages of 2000 AD, we had such wonderful comics um, done by uh, Jerry Finley Day and uh, Carlos Esquera on art, such as uh, Fiends of the Eastern Front. And um, Judge Dredd had quite a few horror stories in it as well, in his title, in his strips, um, mostly dealing around the dark judges. Um, and um, great, great storylines featuring serial killers and other types of inhuman monsters plaguing mutants and the like, plaguing Dredd and the city of Mega City One. So there was a lot of horror infused, but often in the guise of science fiction. But from the 1950s to the 1970s, when uh, 2000 AD first made its, um, uh, reared its head in the British comic book market, um, there was a lot of comedic, like I say, uh, children's uh, stories published, which featured characters that should have been horror, but actually were not. They were comedic spoofs. And, of course, there were some magazines, like the magazines focusing on the Hammer films and um, the popular movies of the time, which was a lot, a lot of them were actually horror, uh, but no comics per se that dealt directly with it. I'm still researching this topic. I find it really fascinating because Britain's got such a rich history of, of uh, comic books going all the way back to just uh, after World War II. Um, and I find it fascinating. And because of this, I'm going to have to spend quite a bit of money picking up a lot of titles in order to get the full picture. So we'll definitely revisit the history of British horror at a later date, once I can glean more information. But for now, all you have to know is that Scream and Misty are back. They've been reprinted and there's new stories coming in the future from Rebellion UK as the publisher. And things couldn't be better. I'm very excited for what um, these comics will offer us as readers and fans of horror. I've always loved uh, British horror in particular, especially through movies and, um, and uh, novels. And now I'm very excited for comic books as well, again. So looking forward to that. All right, um, in our next segment, we'll be looking at the concept of monsters and how that permeates all of horror. Not just fiction, but of course movies and um, comic books, art, everything really. The concept of the monster. There is a red and angry world. Red things happen there. The world eats your wife, eats your friends, it's all the things that make you human. And you become a monster. And the world just keeps on eating. If you look at horror from a philosophical point of view, then there are actually very few definitions of the genre. Um, but I think that any work of horror must invariably include the presence of a monster. Now, this could be interpreted um, in a variety of ways. You could have supernatural monsters. You could have more human monsters that menace you um, psychologically and also physically, but without any overt supernatural elements. 
But the monster in question has to be fearsome. It can't be uh, friendly. Uh, otherwise, it becomes something other than a monster. It might still look monstrous or appear to be threatening. But the very fact that the reader or um, the moviegoer knows that this monster is in fact um, one of the good guys would sort of detract from the concept of horror, from the horror of the monster itself. So monsters like the Incredible Hulk and the Thing from the Fantastic Four, they um, are monsters to a certain degree, but they're not really monsters of the fearsome kind. Now, of course, this is just my opinion. But I think that um, the monster that I'm referring to in horror, the one that induces real fear, um, has to be sort of a, a liminal entity, an interstitial uh, creature, which um, doesn't quite fit into our frame of reference. We can't quite categorize it. It's something completely other. It might be an amalgamation of human and animal. It might be an alien that vaguely resembles humanoid. It might be something completely formless or um, something possessing a form that is so horrific and disturbing to our eyes that we are driven insane, like in the fiction of H.P. Lovecraft. But in comic books, horrors must be shown. It's a visual medium. And um, therefore, the horrors have to, the monsters themselves, have to be visually arresting and frightening. Now, this is something we don't normally get in fiction. In uh, literature, monsters can be implied and not always shown. And this is one of the hallmarks of great horror fiction, is when the creeping sense of dread we get from the book doesn't result directly from a visual uh, interpretation uh, of the monster, but from something implied, something lurking just behind our sight and um, comprehension. So, um, of course, monsters... Have, real monsters have to be designed to arouse uh, disgust and fear uh, in the readers, especially uh, among comic book readers. So they have to be visually disgusting and gruesome or upsetting. Um, the fearsomeness, the very fearsomeness of this monster has to uh, invoke this sense of dread or fear, uh, existential terror almost. And... Um, Obviously, uh, there could be a number of emotions associated with the, the monster. There could be, like Stephen King mentions in his book, Dance Macabre, he mentions the gross out. Some mon monsters are inherently gross, like John Carpenter's The Thing. And then other monsters are more um, secretive and sinister, uh, but no less fearsome, such as Count Dracula. But what I want to do here is to... Uh, with this section of the podcast is to show how important the concept of a monster is. And this ties, of course, indirectly with um, the first comic book we discussed, a Monster, um, conceived by Alan Moore. Um, monsters have to be present in order to invoke horror. Now, this could be, like I mentioned, uh, monsters of the human variety, such as Dr. Hannibal Lecter, or um, Norman Bates from Psycho. But in comic book form, um, those monsters 
do exist as well. I might cite Scott Snyder's uh, comic book called Severed, where the monster is a serial killer who um, uh, kills and eats children. So he's a cannibal, but he appears quite monstrous, even though there's no supernatural connotations, um, by you know taking out his dentures and replacing them with these um, artificial um, fangs which he uses to tear and rip the flesh from the dead children's bodies. So, of course, that qualifies as a monster as well. And um, in order to uh, prove to you exactly what I mean by the concept of a fearsome monster in comic books, I'm going to name some of my favorites um, on the comic book page. This is just my personal list of favorites. It's by no means a, um, a universal list. Uh, and, um, yeah, they are as follows. I've always been a fan of monsters, uh, more so than superheroes. I, I was a great superhero reader back in the day. I still pick up the odd superhero comic now and then. But as I, but as I say, monsters appeal to me. And um, some of the superhero comics that I read as a kid, I simply read because there was the, the hint of a monster in the comic. Not one of the main protagonists, of course, but um, whatever they'll be facing might have been quite monstrous. So I'm going to start off my list here. And 10th, um, uh, I'm going to make uh, 10 examples of fearsome monsters in horror. Um, I'll start with an uh, alien creature called the Brood. Uh, this is from the X-Men comics. And the Brood are very similar in appearance to Ridley Scott's alien, um, those xenomorphs except that they are more insect-like and they sport wings and giant stingers and these massive foreheads, way bigger than the alien foreheads. Plus, these, their teeth are similar to the aliens, but they don't have the inner mouth, which the alien uses to kill. Uh, the brood, though, also infects their victims and um, an egg hatches and completely changes you into a brood. The brood are quite monstrous because um, the infection occurs much more um, quickly than the infection in Ridley Scott's Alien. Um, they could infect an entire town. And in fact, one of the things that really horrified me about the brood was the fact that they are um, uh, tentacular. They have lots of tentacles um, other than hands and feet, like the alien Ridley Scott, which is vaguely humanoid, but these brood are completely insect-like um, in the X-Men comics. And they, in fact, um, live as parasites on giant, um, sentient um, space whales or beings that they inhabit, and they carve them out. They hollow out these space creatures and uh, build their homes within their carcasses and then they can also manipulate the brain stems of these creatures to wherever they need to go much like spaceships and uh, this was quite horrifying to me as a kid i remember that so the brood definitely uh, one of the scariest fearsome monsters in comics then another um creature that bears mentioning would be uh the man thing also from marvel man thing like i say he's uh, often portrayed as a good guy but in the comic books, he's not really like the Swamp Thing from DC, where he's intelligent. The Man-Thing himself is not intelligent. What he shambles about 
And he's this huge hulking swamp-like monstrosity um, with these large liquid red eyes and these long, almost vine-like um, protuberances coming from his face. And he shambles about, and then whenever he feels fear, he's attracted to it. And then, what? like the um, tagline to the comic book says, whatever knows fear burns at the touch of the man-thing. So innocents, uh, supervillains, the, uh, the guilty, anyone who crosses his path, if you feel fear, you are immediately uh, prey for the man thing. And that scared me as a kid. I, I found this quite fearsome. Um, he wasn't a hero for me. And um, I think that he qualifies as one of the fearsome monsters. Then um, another fearsome monster that bears mentioning is uh, the Violator from the Spawn comic books. The Violator is Spawn's arch enemy, at least in the early issues, um, before Spawn upped the ante by challenging the very lords of hell themselves, even even God. But um, Violator definitely, as his name implies, he's a force to be reckoned with. He's, um, he's not a rapist. <laughs> it's not that kind of violation. He's more like violating the earth by walking the earthly plane. And um, he's way, uh, much more um, fearsome than Spawn himself. He's stronger. He usually gets the best of Spawn in a mano-a-mano confrontation. And he's also visually very, very arresting. He's got this giant grin, uh, fang teeth, horribly crooked body, goat-like horns on his head, thin legs seeming unable to support his, his gangly frame, um, which is monstrous, by the way, even though it appears as, as this thin reed-like appendages. Very um, striking visual image that Violator uh, gives to the reader, but very fearsome at the same time. And then um, uh, let's bring it back to DC Comics, a monster that I've discussed before in one of our horror uh comic character bios, and that is Dr. Anton Arcane, the enemy of the Swamp Thing. Now, he uh, didn't start off as a monster. He started off as a, a scientist, a biologist, and a master of the arcane arts, but only later he became monstrous when he um, transferred his consciousness into the body of a monster and various other monsters later on. Um uh, at first, the monster that he transferred into was similar to a Frankenstein-type monster, um, this horrif horrifically deformed body. And then later on, he transferred himself into the Swamp Thing's body, and also much later than that, into this spider-like creature with this demonic face, all uh, you know, with this large, yellow, putrescent eye. So he was always quite monstrous um, and seems to be able to body jump uh, between creatures and one becomes more horrific, horrific than the next. Whichever form he chooses manages to eclipse the previous one in terms of fearsomeness. So Arcane, definitely one of the biggest monsters. And then we've got the demons from Lock and Key. Um, the comic book series by Joe Hill and Gabriel Rodriguez. Uh, the demons that uh, jump through the portal to the other verse 
um, and inhabit the minds of the people from uh, the town of Lovecraft. Zack, uh, one of the main characters in the book and also the main uh, antagonist, has been possessed by one of these demons and they're quite monstrous even though he's in a human form. Whenever you see Zack's soul, which happens quite frequently with all the uh, mechanisms and magical keys in the um, so-called key house where the stories take place, you see this horrific one-eyed type of parasite or virus clinging to uh, the souls of the people it inhabits. And that's also a very visually disturbing and arresting monster. And then we bring it back to Alan Moore again um, with his creation. Well, it wasn't actually his creation, but I should say his iteration of Kid Miracle Man, um, a character in the pages of, his, of Alan Moore's comic Miracle Man, first published by Warrior um, Press. And Kid Miracle Man is a superhuman uh, who appears human, but his facial expressions and his entire body, in fact, is not human. He's a monstrous creature who, with his vast powers, um, commits horrific atrocities and, and uh, murders on a, um, a massive, colossal scale. Um, his um, feats of destruction has, have included um, the obliteration of London, ripping people's skins off their bodies, hanging them up on clotheslines, tossing cars into the air, watching the families inside them die of fright as the cars crash down and pulverizes them. Um, also, um, you know, destroying... Uh, he, he doesn't care, just indiscriminately kills women and children, uh, men alike. So definitely a very monstrous creature, Kid Miracle Man, as conceived by Alan Moore. Uh, then we've got um, uh, one of the Marvel characters called Ghost Rider. Ghost Rider for me was always a very uh, ambiguous, amoral character. I found him quite frightening reading him as a child because uh, he was placed in the role of hero, but often than not, uh, more often than not, Zarathos, the demon that inhabited the body, body of Johnny Blaze, would go um, off a straight and narrow path and um, commit acts of evil. He wouldn't directly murder. Johnny Psyche was always strong enough to keep him from that, but he would torture, especially with his pen and stare and uh, his hellfire. So uh, Ghost Rider definitely uh, warrants a mention as one of the most fearsome monsters on the comic book page. Um, I should mention Marvel's Dracula as well, their version of Dracula in Tomb of Dracula. He's portrayed as very fearsome, very sinister. Um, but I've spoken about him at length in previous podcasts. So those are just a few of the monsters. But then, um, before I end the segment, I want to mention the last one on the list, which is a very obscure character. But I'm sure if you ever track down any of the issues featuring him, you'll find him to be very disturbing and fit, uh, befitting the, dis the description of a fearsome monster. And this is a character also from the pages of the X-Men. He's a purple demon uh, called Sim, one of Belasco's servants. Belasco being a lord of 
Hal, a demonologist who attained the status of demon master and entered the realms of hell. And he has a servant, this Belasco, called Sim, um, a gigantic creature of prodigious strength and cruelty who has murdered the X-Men numerous times in parallel realities. And um, he is frightening. There's an, an issue of the New Mutants. I think it's New Mutants uh, issue 12. I'm not sure. I'll, I'll make sure of that just now. But where he hunts down Colossus's young sister, Ileana, in the, the halls of the Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters. And that was very disturbing to me, especially um, as a young child reading it, because um, he attacks children and violence towards children when you are a child is uh, very, very upsetting, I think. And even now that I'm um, you know, older, I find that to be quite unsettling whenever I read about it or, or watch it on a movie. So uh, Sim, a very visually uh, interesting character as well, um, large, protruding lower jaw, fang teeth. He wears a little bit of a vest, a black vest, a bit of a fashionable monster. He's got these huge, um, disproportionate, muscular arms and uh, legs the size of, you know, Roman pillars and horns and this massive tail. Uh, Google it if you want to see what Sim really looks like. But it's really a fearsome character. It's also through his deeds that a reader really uh, finds him unsettling and upsetting. So that's my list of uh, comic book monsters, fearsome monsters, that I found truly frightening as a child. All right, for our next segment, we'll do our recommendations. And I would also like to give some shout-outs to friends of the show who have helped me promote The Long Box of Darkness. Notice anything unusual about Santa Carla yet? No. It's a pretty cool place. If you're a Martian. Or a vampire. Are you guys sniffing old newsprint or something? You think you really know what's happening around here, don't you? Well, I'll tell you something. You don't know shit, buddy. Yeah. You think we just work at a comic book store for our folks, huh? Actually, I thought it was a bakery. This is just our cover. We're dedicated to a higher purpose. We're fighters for truth, justice, and the American way. All right. Hey, man. Read this. I told you, I don't like horror comics. Think of it more as a survival manual. There's a number on the back. And pray you never need to call us. I'll pray I never need to call you. All right, I'd like to end the show by mentioning some people who've recently helped me out a bit with promotions and, um, you know, getting my blog out there and talking about the podcast. 
First on the list is my buddy from Twitter, Grant Richter. Um, Grant has a number of blogs under his name. Um, right now he's doing the Feral Samurai blog at blogspot.com. Um, he's also known for doing a Swamp Thing blog, as well as a blog on uh, general popular culture and comic book reading bliss. So uh, check out Grant on Twitter. And you can find him at I am Grant Richter. Um, that's on Twitter. And there you can find uh, links to his various blogs. So I hardly recommend his stuff. He's also got a patron, Patreon, Patreon, <laughs> Patreon site going. So you can support him there. He really blogs about very interesting topics. And um, I feel a general sense of happiness every time I, I read his stuff. So he really uplifting. So thanks for that, Grant. I appreciate your support, buddy. And then um, I also want to give a shout out to um, another Twitter friend of mine called I'm the Gun. You can find him at I'm the Gun on Twitter. And um, he's got a very interesting blog too, not, not specifically about horror, but um, about all manner of comics. And um, you can find him on uh, on Twitter at I'm the Gun. Um, I hardly recommend his blog as well. Uh, every Wednesday he posts, and it's always worth the wait. And then another great blog that I recently discovered through the web through the Facebook group, the United Nations of Horror, is a blog run by a lady called Erin Miskell, and the blog is called Backseat Driver Reviews. And that's at BackseatDriverReviews.com, which is her website. And um, she reviews movies and general um, horror articles and pop culture and just an awesome blog full of interesting little tidbits and um, very um, intellectual articles as well, which I really, really enjoy reading. Um Reading it will definitely make you feel a whole lot smarter. <laughs> so I recommend Aaron Miskell's blog, BackseatDriverReviews.com. Uh, then I'd like to finish with some recommendations. There's two comics I want to recommend uh, to you listeners that you have to pick up. Um, great horror titles. And it's both, both of them are written by Cullen Bunn, the famous horror writer, um, who's only recently, I should say, become famous. And the first of these comic books is called The Unholy Grail, <laughs> which is sort of a, a riff on the Arthurian legend, which paints King Arthur in quite a sinister light. Looks like everything didn't go as heroically as the stories portray. Um, there's quite a bit of evil involved in Arthur's ascension. Uh, most notably, Merlin in this tale is portrayed as a demon who assumed human form, a demon who escaped from hell and then proceeded to manipulate Arthur for his own purposes. But Arthur himself is um, not a black and white character at all. He's definitely very uh, disturbed and um, uh, tempted by all manner of evil delights in this comic book. So I hardly recommend that. The art is also uh, truly great. And like I said, it's written by Cullen Bunn, 
Uh, you can't go wrong there. He's got so many great horror titles out there um, at the moment. So you know you're going to get good stories uh, from him. Then the second comic book I want to recommend is a comic book called Dark Ark. And uh, this is published by Aftershock Press. Uh, Dark Ark has such a great concept. Basically, it's set in the world of the flood, the biblical flood, where Noah um, gathered uh, two of every animal and his close friends and family on the ark and survived the uh, torrential, supernatural torrents of rain. But what if there was a second ark that wasn't sanctioned by God, but instead sanctioned by the devil, and it contained all the unnatural creatures of the earth, all the vampires, the monsters, um, the ghouls, um, the Cthulhu-like entities, and they survived the flood by, uh, by basically um, sailing on this dark ark. <laughs> it's a great, great um, premise. And there's two issues of Dark Ark available at the moment, three issues of the Unholy Grail. I'd heartily recommend that you check them out. Both of them are available on Comixology. Um, I think Dark Ark, like I mentioned, is published by Aftershock, uh, Aftershock Press with art by Wando. And then um, the Unholy Grail is published by Aftershock Press as well. Oh, yeah. And... Um, art by Mirko Kolak. So check out those com comics, Constant Listeners. I'm sure you'd be surprised by how good they are. Or maybe you won't be surprised. I mean, it's Cullen Bunn after all. Well, with that, it's time for me to say goodnight. It's late over here in Taipei. Um, I'm sitting in the study all alone, and I'm starting to be freaked out talking about so much horror. But... Don't let that deter you from joining me again in a week or two's time for yet another peek inside the long box of darkness. Good night, constant listeners. Until next time.